4: Welcome to the Darkened Hour.
3: Welcome to another episode of the Darkened Hour. I'm your host, Adam Fitzgerald. In today's episode, I will be playing edits from the joint inquiry into intelligence community activities before and after the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001. The specific excerpts I will be playing will be from committee panelist Carl Levin. Levin had stood out of the 16 panelists for me, due to his unnerved attitude, which was straightened to the point, his inquiries regarding specifically the CIA failure to share information with the State Department and FBI concerning Khalid Al-Midar and Wafa Hazmi were poignant. A longtime committee staffer and authoritative elder of many intelligence and investigative committees. which spanned over 40 years, have made him to be one of the more invaluable and stoic congressional officials in history. There are five edits I will be playing today where I will play the whole audio. And then after each one is finished, I will add additional commentary and offer my thoughts on the matter. The total audio commentary is just about 61 minutes with the first one being about five minutes, 31, five minutes, 31 seconds long, which is a statement from Carl Levin himself.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, let me
2: uh, thank you, Ms. Hill and your staff uh, for you, getting sir. us to the point where we are finally analyzing and presenting to the American people the significant intelligence failures which occurred prior to September 11th. At this stage of the inquiry, much is already evident. First, the intelligence community said that it was at war with Osama bin Laden. and had said so for three years prior to the attack of September 11th. Second, despite National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice's assertions to the contrary, the use of a plane as a terrorist weapon capable of causing mass mass casualties was neither ingenious nor novel, but rather a method of attack that the intelligence community knew that the terrorists were considering as early as the early and mid nineties. Third, there is much troubling evidence that information crucial to preventing attacks by al-Qaeda terrorists was not shared or acted upon by intelligence officials prior to September 11th. Those intelligence failures will haunt loved ones and their families and should also haunt us and motivate us to very strong and necessary reforms. Here's just a few examples that I'm summarizing from your report in january of 2000 the u.s intelligence community was alerted to a meeting of al-qaeda members in malaysia including two of the eventual hijackers of american airlines flight 77 the handoff of that information from the cia to the fbi was bungled The individuals were not tracked and inexplicably were not promptly placed on a white on a watch list 10 days later The two accomplices entered the United States on a flight to Los Angeles. Location of the individuals after they were finally placed on the watch list was also mishandled. Second, a July 10, 2001 memorandum from an FBI field agent in Phoenix to the Osama bin Laden unit and the radical fundamentalist unit at FBI headquarters requesting that an investigation be opened into the foreign terrorist training at flight schools in the US was never acted upon nor was the phoenix field investigation shared with the CIA as specifically suggested by the FBI agent and this is not in your memo but this is what we learned that nearly a year after the phoenix memo the FBI director was unable to explain to our committee who saw that request from the Phoenix FBI agent, what was done with the request, and who, if anyone, had been held accountable for letting that important information fall between some crack. Third, the August 16th, 2001, arrest of Zacharias Moussaoui and the suspicions of the FBI agents in Minneapolis that he might be planning to undertake a terrorist attack using a plane, And the urgent request that a warrant to search his computer and other belongings were not acted upon by FBI headquarters. And I want to emphasize a point here. These were not some reports from unreliable sources. These were not unconfirmed statements. These were FBI agents that were asking for action. Their requests were ignored. Now, I believe it is critically important for the administration to release the Phoenix Memorandum, documents relating to the Minneapolis FBI office request and other documents that will allow the American people to judge for themselves the significance of these missed signals and the failures to share information between and within the intelligence and law enforcement communities. The committee, I understand, has asked for declassification of those documents. That request is under consideration, I understand, by the administration in preparation for next week's hearings. And i we've had discussion about this already this morning, but I, I do hope that the leadership of these committees, our committees, will let the administration know that our committees will seek Congressional authorization by legislation, if necessary, to declassify appropriate information if the executive branch refuses. We have chairman and vice chairman of our committees who've agreed on some matters. It seems to me that is enough for us as committees to automatically authorize them to seek legislation should the executive branch refuse. And that would go to future refusals, not just the previous ones. The American people understand that perfection is unattainable, but they also believe, as I do, that when errors are made, accountability, accountability is essential if lessons are to be learned for the sake of the future security of our nation.
3: Okay, that's the end of the first excerpt. That is Carl Levin's statement in which many of the points that he raises will be asked to specific intelligence officials in the videos I will be playing coming up, the audio. The first issue is the intelligence community said it was at war with Osama bin Laden in 1998. This is, of course, talking about the bin Laden FABWA, which was
5: authorized by the group declaring itself
3: under the entitlement of declaration of war against the Americans occupying the land of the two holy places. The fatwa signed by Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Swahari, Ahmed Rafai Taha, Mir Hamza and Fazul Rahman, called themselves the World
5: Islamic Front.
3: Listing the actions of Americans that they claim conflict with God's order and stating that the Front's ruling to kill the Americans and their allies, civilian and military is an individual duty for every Muslim who could do it in any country in which it is possible to do it. There was a previous fabric to this in 1996 which concentrated just on the military in Mecca and Medina in Saudi Arabia.
5: What Levin
3: wanted to show here was that years prior to 9-11, three years, that there was a declaration of war made by the CIA under director George Tenet. The second point he raised was Despite Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State, assertions to the contrary, planes being used to inflict mass casualties were known to the Intelligence Committee since the mid-1990s. This is true. Condoleezza Rice did state to the 9-11 Commission that they had no idea that they were going to use planes as weapons. This is something I've raised many times previously in video and audio format even here on the podcast, regarding the use of planes as weapons. In 1996, there was a report, which was written up by the Philippines investigation into the Bajinka plot, which was an international terrorist plot to bomb 12 airliners, in which one of the participants, Abdul Hakim Murad, was later captured, and interrogated under the head of the investigation, Rodolfo Mendoza, in which he later stated that Murad said there was a second operation involved with the Bajinka plot, which was sleeper cells inside the United States who were training at flight schools that were to hijack planes and crash them into US sensitive targets. According to Rodolfo Mendoza, this information was sent to the FBI. It's five years prior to 9-11. And he said they did nothing with it. If the FBI would have acted on it, they would have sent it to the FAA, Federal Aviation Administration, and the Immigration of Naturalization Services where the security measures would be implemented stricter. There would be stricter security measures implemented. Third point Levin raised was the crucial information regarding Khalid al-Midore al Hasbi was not shared or acted on by the CIA prior to 9-11 or by intelligence, domestic intelligence officials prior to 9-11. The examples were the January 2000 Malaysia Summit meeting about Qaeda operatives, the July 10, 2001 meeting, uh, or the Phoenix memo requesting investigation into foreign terrorists training at flight schools, The memo was not shared to the CIA, but it was directed to uh, specific FBI officials in which FBI Director Rob Real couldn't explain to the committee who saw the memo or what was done with it. Levin also raised a fourth point, which was the August 16, 2001 arrest of Zacharias Moussaoui, in which a FISA warrant was not acted upon by the Radical Fundamentalist unit in Minneapolis, headed by Mike Maltby and Marion Bowman to search Musawi's laptops and his hotel room and possessions in which the FISA warrant, according to the Radical Fundamentalist unit was altered instead of being a
5: Criminal matter was an investigative matter. And there
3: are arguments over the legality of wording within the warrant, which led counsel officer Colleen Rowley to write a very lengthy response letter personally to the FBI director Robert Mueller later. Levin also states that the committee needs future documents, specifically the Phoenix memo. To classified for review, and he wants to
5: make them public. Public, and why
3: not? This is an issue for the public, unless there are certain things within these documents they don't want us to see. The question is why, but we'll get into that
5: in the later
3: reviews of these audios. Now the second audio I'm about to play is 20 minutes long, in which Carl Levin interviews CIA official and an FBI agent who are hidden behind partition screens. And so their real names won't be uh, publicly known. However, since this interview took place on September 20th, 2002, the statement took place Carl Levin's statement took place on September 18, 2002. This interview by Carl Levin regarding these two people was conducted on September 20, 2002. And it is later publicly is now publicly known through books and documents that the hidden official from the CIA is Tom Wilshire, the former deputy director of the bin Laden issue station, codenamed Alex Station. Who was later on loan to the FBI's counterterrorism unit investigating the U.S.'s coal bombing. The FBI agent hidden behind the other partition seated next to Wilshire is New York counterterrorism agent Steve Bongard.
5: Mr. Chairman, thank you.
2: Um, I'm going to focus on the 18-month period uh, starting in January of uh, 2000, and I want to spend a few minutes uh, describing the environment leading up to that date. Ms. Hill began her very, very thorough and very thoroughly discouraging presentation uh, with the statement that the story begins in December, 1999, with the intelligence community on heightened alert And I've prepared a chronology, which uh, I'll share with all of the members, um, which just to summarize, go back a few years before her beginning of the story. In January of 96, when the CIA created a special unit to focus on bin Laden, in February of 98, when bin Laden issued a public fatwa authorizing and promoting attacks on U.S. civilians anywhere in the world, May 1998, in a press conference when bin Laden says he's going to bring war to America. In June 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information from several sources that bin Laden is considering attacks in the U.S., including Washington and New York. August 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that an unidentified group from the Middle East are going to fly an explosive-laden plane from a foreign country into the World Trade Center. September 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that bin Laden's next operation could possibly involve flying an aircraft loaded with explosives into a U.S. airport. October 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information that al-Qaeda was trying to establish an an operative cell within the United States. The fall of 1998, when the intelligence community obtains information concerning a bin Laden uh, plot involving aircraft in New York, Washington uh, areas. And then in December 1998, when uh, we, uh, as we heard yesterday or the day before, when DCI Tenet uh, provided some written guidance to presumably everybody in the CIA, declaring that the United States is at war with bin Laden and Al Qaeda. That's December 1998, before the story begins. The spring of 1999 when the intelligence community obtains information about a planned al-Qaeda attack on the united states government facility in washington august 1999 when the intelligence community obtains information that bin laden has decided to target for assassination the secretary of state and uh, secretary of defense and the dci december 1999 when uh, ahmed Rassam is arrested as he attempts to enter the united states and the state of washington from canada with chemicals and detonator material is intended to target is Los Angeles Airport. December 1999, when the DCI communication to CIA employees warns a mounting threat of al-Qaeda attack to U.S. interests abroad and in the United States, urging them to do whatever is necessary to disrupt bin Laden's plans. That's the background. That's what happens when in December of 1999, the CIA gets information from its own sources that um, two men, the men we're following, Al-Midar and Hazmi, are coming to Malaysia. That is not rumors. That is confirmed by the CIA's own people. And then they come to Malaysia in January of 2000. And the CIA, we know, monitored the al-Qaeda members there, including the two people at issue. They knew that these two people uh, had, at least in one case, uh, already had a a visa to go to the United States. Uh, That uh, information was not put into the watch list. It was not shared with the FBI. Um, It knew that Al-Midar had a multiple entry visa, as a matter of fact, and knew of his ties to Al-Qaeda. Um, two failures there, not placed on the watch list, not shared with the FBI. Then in March of 2000, the CIA found out that Al Hazmi had entered the United States at Los Angeles International Airport on January 15th, not shared with the FBI, even though they knew he entered the United States not shared with the watch list. Then another event occurs in October of 2000. This is a watershed event. This is the coal being blown up. And by January of 2001, the CIA, the CIA knows that the coal planner was at that January 2000 meeting in Malaysia. They knew that uh, a man named Khalad had been the center of that attack and the planner, and that Khalad was at the January 2000 Malaysia meeting with the two people we're talking about, Al-Midhar and Al-Hazmi. CIA still did not place either individual on the watch list, still no notice of known visas, and I emphasize that, known visas to the FBI. They may or may not have shared with the FBI earlier that one of them had a passport and in terms of visas and present visas to enter the United States. And the fact that one at least had entered the United States still CIA doesn't place names on watch lists, still no notice to the FBI. And now we have a direct link to the killer or the killers of Americans on the USS Cole. Direct link between these two men, Al midhar and Al Hazmi, to the planning, the, the planner,
5: Khalad, of the Al Qaeda attack on the USS Cole. Now I want to
2: proceed now to the June 11th, 2000, and meeting, uh, 2001 meeting, because that's what I really want to focus on, and then the events after that. But that's a bit of the background.
5: If I'm wrong in any of that, I would assume that our witnesses would correct me. On page nine at the bottom of Ms. Hill's report. It stated the
2: following, On June 11, 2001, FBI headquarters representatives and CIA representatives met with the New York FBI agents handling the Cole investigation. The New York agents were shown but not given copies of the photographs that they, and, and told that they were taken in Malaysia. They weren't told that. Still, information being withheld. This is after the Cole, information withheld from the FBI. One of the New York agents recalled that Al-Midhar's name was being mentioned. He also recalled asking for more information on why the people in the photographs were being followed. So we got an FBI now asking the CIA, why are you following these folks? He recalled asking for more information on why they were being followed and for access to that information. The New York agents were advised they could not be told why Al-Midhar and the others were being followed. This is truly unbelievable. I've got to tell you, you all, this is extraordinary. This has got nothing to do with information which can't cross a wall. This has to do with leads, which are not shared with the FBI. Just simple leads. Information, which is so critical. Now, an FBI uh, headquarters representative told us in her interview That the FBI was never given specific information until it was provided after September 11, 2001. And here's where I want to pick up with our witnesses. The CIA analyst who attended the New York meeting acknowledged to the joint inquiry staff that he had seen the information regarding Al-Midar's U.S. visa and Al-Hazmi's travel to the U.S., but he stated that he would not share information outside of the, of the CIA unless he had authority to do so and unless that was the purpose of the meeting. Now, June 11th, New York. Now we've got the FBI asking the CIA, would you tell us why you're following these two guys? And according to the CIA analysts, to our staff, that information was denied because no authority to do so, unless that's the purpose of the meeting. So I'll ask our CIA officer, as far as you know, is our
5: staff report correct? I would... uh, The whole staff report? No. (laughs) Um, What I read- Could could I just limit
4: my comment to the June 11th meeting for right now? Just on that. Okay. Um, Is that correct, what I just read? I would, first of all, I would distinguish between um, one CIA officer saying, I don't feel comfortable with sharing this information with um, with a particular FBI individual from the entire corporate body of the CIA and its policy. The second thing I would say is that the CIA officer was Just there. Just ask you if this happened. Not exactly that way. Okay, then tell us how it happened. I wasn't there. But what I will say is that when the CIA officer said, I'm not going to give you um, Mr. Or you know FBI agent, the uh, this information. He was in the company of an FBI headquarters uh, agent who, or analyst who had, had the information. The information was in the hands of the FBI. It was a question of my 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 interpretation of this event, at which I, I wasn't there. Is that the analyst was being conservative and and basically in the, all I can do is you know go into the dangerous ground of speculating what's in his head. No, no, but, no, I'd, I'd rather you not speculate okay. there. I wasn't there. Right, let me ask But, you, but I, I, this is important because he was there with, an F, with FBI people, and this was not CIA withholding information from the FBI. There was something else at work here that I'm not quite sure of because it, we were in support of the Cole investigation. The no, entire, not, a lot of this exercise was yeah, coal. I What I just want to
2: move to the FBI agent who I believe was there. Yes, sir. Um, before you begin, I just want to say something. You will never receive the public recognition that you deserve for what you try to do, for your emails, for your efforts to break down wall, real and imaginary, for your effort to break through bureaucracy. And if I have time, I want to ask you about what happened on 9-11. But in any event, I just want you to know that you deserve that recognition. Um, And I'm sorry it can't be public recognition having said that and not knowing how you're going to answer the question. You were at this meeting.
6: Uh, Um, Yes, sir. First off, I'd like to accept that, but on behalf of all the agents that I, uh, I
2: I expected no less from you. You were at the meeting. Was there a, uh, yes, sir. Was Was that
6: accurate? The staff report. Um, as best as I can recall, sir, I, I wouldn't be able to, uh, add anything to your comments. I, from what I remember, it's exactly how it occurred. And there's still some, there's still some disagreement. However, my belief of how events happen to this day um, are that the analyst herself did not know uh, all the information that the CIA had at that time. And that I know there, there are different uh, versions of that, so I, I don't want to speculate about that. But my understanding of events today is that the analyst did not have uh, access to that information either because we had intelligence agents from the Bureau that were in the room at the time and the rest of us criminal agents, even though we were frustrated, could have walked out of the room and, uh, and then received that information.
2: Did someone at the meeting say he could not share information outside of the CIA unless
6: he had authority to do so and unless that was the purpose of the meeting? Do you remember that? Not those exact words, um, but I was told that, uh, that he could not share that information with me and my agents at the time and that that information would be uh, attempted to be passed in the following days weeks or or months you know whether it ever was whether it was passed in the following in the succeeding days no in fact i had had several conversations with the analyst after that because we were we would talk on other matters and almost every time i would ask her what's the story with the midhar information when's it going to get passed do we have anything yet when's it going to get passed um and each time i was told that the information had not been passed yet. And the sense I got from her based on our conversations was that she was trying as hard as she could to get the information passed, or at least the ability to tell us about the information.
2: Mr. Rollins, do you know whether or not uh, the BI agents were told by the CIA officials at that meeting that they could not know why the CIA was following Al Midhar and the others that met in Malaysia? Do you know whether that information was passed at that time? And if not, why not? No, sir, I was not at the meeting. I have talked
1: extensively uh, to our analyst that was there. And as my colleague noted, uh, she is of the position, and I know your staff has talked to her, that she in fact gave our New York agents everything that she had.
2: She said that she did give... In other words, what was passed at that meeting?
5: Well, in according relation- to our
2: staff report, she stated, excuse me, he stated he could not share information outside of the CIA, outside, unless he had authority to do so. Do you know if that's accurate or not? No, sir, I don't know if that's accurate. Okay, you're talking. when you said a she, that was an FBI analyst. You don't know what the CIA analyst said at that meeting. That's correct. Okay. Now we will we'll move then, uh, and I have to rely on the staff report as being accurate, that there was a denial of information at that time. Um, now we move on to August 22nd. An FBI analyst assigned to the Counter Center there is now working, uh, um, and also assigned to the CTC, determined that Al hazmi and Al had entered the U.S. in January 2000, and Al midar's June 2000 reentry visa allowed him to stay until August 22, 2001. And at that point, they were watchlisted. Is that correct?
5: As far as you know? Yes, sir, that's correct. That, that is when it happened. I think we have to know precisely, and perhaps we have to talk to the people other than the
2: FBI agent who is here, who confirms what our staff report says to the best of his knowledge. I think this is such an important question that if there's any difference on this from the staff report, we should hear from the CIA. And I would ask our CIA officer who is here to take that request back. And if there is a difference that that officer had recollection-wise as to what happened at that meeting, whether or not she did in fact refuse to let the FBI know in June of 2001 why the CIA was tracking these two men, Hmm. why they didn't say at that time that we knew that these two men had visas to the United States. The FBI still didn't know that. That still wasn't on the watch list. As of June of 2001, now this is 16 months after the CIA knew that these men had visas to come to the United States and entered the United States. Still, according to our staff report, there is this refusal on the part of the CIA to share this information. And this is critically important information. I, I think that we've got to have accountability in this system. And that failure is massive. And if that information should have been shared and should have been shared a lot earlier, and if watch lists should have been entered, and if FBI should have been notified, which it seems to me it's clear all that should have happened, then we've got to know who is responsible for those failures. If we're going to really break down walls, real and imaginary, we've got to have accountability. If I have one minute left, I'd like to ask our FBI agent to tell us what happened on 9-11 as to what he tried to do and as to a passenger list. I understand if this is okay, non-classified. Uh, no
6: it was it was uh we had come back from um the buildings all in a state of shock um and there was a uh a brief at that time uh by the analyst at headquarters um over who was actually on the manifest and uh when we heard the name Khalid al-Midhar um obviously I I was upset made no bones about being uh saying the fact that I was upset and um I know the analyst was very upset also, so it wasn't just necessarily on, uh, on one side, but um, it was in the afternoon during a conference call that we, and I, and, I, and I remember exclaiming, this is the same Khaled Omidhar that, that we had talked about for three months. And, um, and I remember a supervisor at the time saying, and rightly so, that they had done everything by the book with regards to at least what the FBI could do based on the current understanding of, of, of what the laws were. Uh, But at the same point in time, realizing how ludicrous that that statement sounded to me, um, it it just didn't sit well. What I know of the information that was being
2: sought, there was no barrier to that information being shared, that these persons were suspected of being terrorists. That could have been shared with the FBI. Um, The fact that they were suspected of being in the United States, that could have been shared with the FBI. I don't know of any prohibition in law, in terms of messing up criminal investigations for that information, not just that information, not to have been shared. The reason that June meeting is so critical, there's many reasons why it's critical, but one of them is, Mr. Chairman, that Al-Midhar was out of the United States in June of 2001. He came back in, as I understand it, in July of 2001. If he'd been put on the watch list then at that June meeting, he could not presumably have come back into the United States. Um, And uh, I I think that there's, you know, it's one thing to say that the dots weren't connected and they weren't even when there was an effort made to connect at a June meeting. The effort to connect the dots was frustrating. It's another thing when the dots aren't even put into the file, when the dots aren't put into the watch list when the information isn't even shared. That's, that's even preliminary to connecting dots is simply to get the dots in place where someone can connect them. We didn't even see that. So we have failure piled upon failure here, I believe. I hope there's gonna be some accountability and some answers where there are so far none. But again, I wanna thank our witnesses, all of them. And I wanna thank Ms. Hill and her staff for an extremely thorough report, uh, which I hope will uh, shake up some
3: things. Thank you. Okay. Well, in this audio, Levin describes the environment leading up to the 9-11 attacks by outlining the number of intelligence reports, which were warning of known terrorist groups and the created intelligence operations centers to focus on those reports uh, to act on the intelligence from them. Um, One being the Bin Laden issue station, which was a CIA Analytical Station, Virtual Station, which was uh, created in 1996. Um, and since 1996 to the summer of 2001, the reports warned of terrorists wanting to hijack planes and use them as weapons, which included Bin Laden's two Fabwas, Al-Qaeda conducting terrorist operations under the monitoring of said intelligence community, and the knowledge of certain operations before they were carried out. Um, whether now this would give rise to conspiracy theories, whether they wanted these things to happen or was it basically just a case of malfeasance or just wrongdoing from the competing agencies. We're talking about the domestic agencies. Also, Levin makes it a point that the CIA withheld information from the FBI, as well as the State Department, regarding Khalid Al-Midar and Nawapa Hazmi, two known Al-Qaeda operatives were attending in January of 2000, an Al-Qaeda summit meeting in Malaysia, in which the NSA heard about this meeting through a phone call made at a home in Sana'a, Yemen, which was later known to be an Al-Qaeda communications hub, whom incidentally, the joint inquiry barely asked any questions to the NSA. And this is my main problem with the two congressional inquiries, joint house or the 9-11 commission, basically ignoring the NSA, which had two wiretaps, active wiretaps, Bin Laden satellite phone and the Al-Qaeda Communications hub in Yemen, in which the CIA asked Malaysian authorities to take photographs of anyone attending this meeting, in which they were passed on to the CIA's Alex station, the Bin Laden issue station, was also named Alex station. The CIA collecting intelligence which showed that both men had a US visa and had entered the United States while withholding that information while also knowing that they were also involved with the U.S.'s coal
5: bombing later.
3: Levin also argues the point that the CIA representatives held a meeting with the FBI reps in New York City about being shown photographs of the men attending the Malaysia meeting. And yet when the FBI asks who these men are and why the CIA is following them, he gets no response. Now, this is regarding a meeting between the FBI agent who was hidden behind a partition, Steve Bongart, and an FBI analyst tasked to CIA's
5: counterterrorism unit, Margaret
3: Gillespie is her name, and the CIA analyst himself, who later turned out to be Clark Shannon. Clark Shannon shows Steve Bongard, I'm sorry, It was Margaret Gillespie who showed Steve Bongard photographs and she is told by the CIA about the men in the picture but she doesn't know their names. But that the picture is from a Malaysia summit meeting. She goes to the FBI in New York and she asks Steve Bongard who these men are. Now she doesn't know full names. Steve Bongard says, who are they? And she can't tell them. That information is from the CIA. She can't share that with the FBI. Even though she is part of the counterterrorism team and she is from the FBI. But she is on loan working with the counterterrorism unit in the CIA. Later, that CIA analyst would tell the Joint Inquiry Staff, which wasn't a public uh, viewing, that he had seen information regarding Al-Midar's U.S. visa and Al-Hazmi's travels to the United States. And in a second meeting, Clark Shannon would meet, have a meeting with Steve Bongard and Dina Corsi, an FBI agent in New York, uh, from the Washington D.C. bureau, in which he tells them it's Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf hazmi but he doesn't tell Steve Bongard that they have a U.S. visa or that they're inside the United States. But he does tell them they have a Saudi passport. He also told them that he would not share this information with the FBI unless he was authorized to do so. That was in the second meeting on June 11, in which Bongard asks. Clark Shannon, the CIA analyst, why are they following him? And the FBI analyst told him that he had no authorization to tell them unless he was asked to do so. Levin then inquires to the CIA officer hidden behind the partition screen, Tom Wilshire, whether the reports are accurate, reports regarding Clark Shannon and those two meetings. And Wilshire responded, not exactly, in which Levin responds. Tell us exactly. And Wilshire says he wasn't there. So now he really can't um, offer any speculation to it, and Levitt doesn't want to entertain it. I don't blame him. But Wilshire then responds that the CI analyst, Clark Shannon, with the FBI agent Steve Bongard, and Margaret Gillespie, who's an FBI agent who worked at Alex Station, knew about the information. And Wilshire would later give an excuse saying that. The CIA didn't withhold information because the FBI agent was there and knew of the information. However, that's not particularly true because Margaret Gillespie doesn't know that they were inside the United States or that they had dual U.S. visas. However, the FBI agent, Margaret Gillespie, can't share the information since the information is from the CIA station, not allowed to reveal information without authorization. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's regarding um, a cable that came in, which is, we're gonna be talking about this in later audio, about Hazmi and Khalid al and and Hazmi's U.S. passport, U.S. dual entry visa, man. in which the FBI, Mark Rossini and Doug Miller, it was Doug Miller who drafted the cable trying to warn FBI headquarters and he was not authorized to do so because the CIA put a stop to that information being shared. Also, Levin asks the FBI agent hidden by the partition screen, Steve Bongard, who was present at the meeting and whether these meetings and conversations were accurate. In which Steve Bongard says that there was some disagreement about the uh, details. However, the FBI agent, Margaret Gillespie, didn't know all the information the CIA had at that time. That's right. Because, like I said, she didn't know that they were already inside the United States, Khalid al-Medar and Nawaf and that either man had a dual U.S. visa. Levin then asked Bongard whether the CIA analyst said he couldn't share the information, to which Bongard replied that it wasn't that direct, but the CIA analyst, Clark Shannon, could not share the information at that time, but the information could be Passed on to him in the future, but that future never came. In which Levin then described, then later asks Bongard whether it was shared at the later date. To which Bongard replied that the CIA analyst at Alex Station, in which he doesn't name, but it is Michelle and Casey. In which he's asking Michelle and Casey whether they will receive information regarding Khalid Al-Madar. And the analyst said, they will try The analyst is Michelle and Casey at Alex station. Later on, Bongard would get into a huge shouting match with Michelle and Casey regarding that Khalid Al-Maidan to being inside the United States in which he finds out in August of 2001, one just weeks prior to the September eleven attacks, in which Bonga would later reply, and this is coming from Kevin Fenton's Disconnecting the Dots and Ray Lenuliski's book, The Watchdogs Didn't Bark. Steve Bonga replied, Well, they're not here on fucking Disneyland. There's another FBI agent who didn't sit behind a partition screen, in which Levin asks, um,
5: Michael Rollins, um,
3: whether or not the FBI agent was told by CIA analysts that they could not know why the CIA was following Al-Mitar and Al-Hazmi were being followed by the CIA in January 2000. Now, Rollins says he doesn't know why, but that the FBI who was presented at the meeting, which is Dina Corsi, gave the New York agents everything that she had. I'm sorry, Margaret Gillespie. But that Levin said the FBI agency, Bungard, said he was told that the CIA could not share the information. And Levin even asked Rolney's if that is accurate. And Rolney's says he doesn't know. Now, Rolney's basically wasn't there. So he may not know, or he may know, and is just covering up, You know, he's the assistant director of counterterrorism. The issue of the August 22nd, 2001 meeting between an FBI analyst, Margaret Gillespie, working at Alex Station determined that al and Al-Midar entered the United States in January of 2000. And at, at that point, when she finds out, it's at that point where they were watch Rolnice was asked the question whether they were rotslisted. and he said, yes, that's correct. That Gillespie did find out on August 22nd, 2001 that Al-Hazmi and Al-Middo were inside the United States. Now, this is much too late, it doesn't matter. This information should have been shared with the FBI in January of 2000. Levin uh, uh, brings up the point again, of why the FBI were not made aware of the CIA at the meeting between the CIA and the FBI in June of 2001, June 11th, and why the FBI agent didn't warn our colleagues, or why the CIA analyst, Clark Shannon, didn't tell Steve Bongart about Al Midar and Al Hazmi, who were in possession of a dual US visa, or that they were inside the United States. Even when it was known by the CIA that both were involved with the US's coal bombing. It's now, Levin is like completely flabbergasted at this. And he's like adamant about the issue of accountability because the failure is so massive. The question is, why wasn't this information shared with the FBI? This is a huge failure of of information sharing. Malfeasance at the highest order. The CIA knew that both of these men were involved with the USS Cole bombing, were at the Malaysia summit meeting in January 2000, in which the alleged plotter of the US's coal bombing, nicknamed Kalad, his real name is Waleed bin atash and he's currently at Gitmo, Guantanamo. And that link alone should have been enough for the CIA to tell the FBI that both men need to be watchlisted and need to be monitored by the FBI because it's a domestic issue. But this later would later turn out to be misleading because the CIA claims it was a foreign issue. It was not a domestic issue and that they felt that the next attack would be in Southeast Asia. At the end, Levin asked the Bungart what happened on 9-11 regarding a brief by an analyst at Washington headquarters about the flight manifests in which one of the names, Al-Midar, that Bongard heard about one of the names being on a flight manifest, Khalid Al-Midar. And when Bongard heard this, he said, this is the same Al-Midar we've been asking for the last three months about the CIA and information that they withheld. And he was upset. so was the supervisor, uh, the the analyst, who told him about the flight manifest and Al-Midar's name, in which the supervisor later told Bongard that we did everything by the book regarding information. But the, but the information was not shared by the CIA to the FBI. And if I'm Bongard, and if I'm Marco Rossini, if I'm Doug Miller, Margaret Gillespie, or, or Ken Williams of Phoenix, uh, Robert O'Wright in Chicago, Colleen Rowley in Minnesota, Minneapolis, or Harry Sam, all these FBI agents will later become whistleblowers. I'm pissed off too at the CIA.
5: What's even worse was that,
3: this, that Khalid Al-Midar left the country for Yemen in June of 2001. And if he was watchlisted in early of 2000, initially when he came into the country, he would have been immediately monitored when he came back in July of 2001 and put on a watch list. But he was, on a put, he was put on a watch list one month after he returned to the United States. Incredible. All right, the next audio is Carl Levin interviewing FBI agents hidden behind a partition screen. That FBI agent's name is Ken Williams out of Phoenix. This interview took place on September 25, 2002, and it's 10 minutes long. Senator
2: Levin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, I have two requests of our chairman uh, before I ask uh, my questions. One is uh, I would request that there be a redaction and then a release publicly of both the Phoenix memo uh, and the Minneapolis documents. Um, I made a request uh, many, many months ago back in May or June for the public release after redaction to protect sources and methods. Uh, the letter I get back from the uh, uh, yeah, the FBI was that uh, they hope to do this at some point in the not too distant future. It is still not done. It, it is an essential part of uh, our investigation. I believe that the documents with proper redaction be released publicly. Uh, without that, uh, accountability is less likely. So I would ask the chairs to take that under consideration. Secondly, I'd like to highlight a portion in the, uh, the staff report this morning on page 23, 23. Uh, where near the bottom of the page, it says that a CIA officer detailed to FBI headquarters learned of the Masawi investigation from CTC in the third week of August. The officer was alarmed about Masawi for several reasons. Those reasons are stunning quotes. If I can put it that way from documents, um, which I can't see any reason not to be released. And I would uh, hope that the chairs and vice chairs would get together and um, see whether or not we cannot get the disclosure of those, uh, those quotes from uh, the, the documents referred to. This was, a, a, when the CIA stations were advised of the known facts, that's the next line. Uh, all I can tell you is that the reference there are to uh, uh, specific uh, decisions, findings made by that officer which uh, were directly relevant to this investigation into these events. So I would ask that our chairs take that under, uh, they would consider that request as well. Uh, That request has in fact already been made and it is a a work in process. I'm not sure how it is going to come out, but uh, you will be advised. And the first one as well. Yes, sir. Both of those. Thank you. Third, uh, now the uh, questions. Um, This would be for our headquarters agent. Uh, The Phoenix FBI agent recommended that uh, FBI headquarters quote should discuss the concerns raised by the agent in the Phoenix memorandum, but other elements of the US intelligence community and task the community for any information that supports Phoenix suspicions. I gather that was not done. Is that correct? And if so, why not briefly? Um, I, I've learned, obviously, post
7: 9-11 of, of some of the actions that were taken both by the field and by the analysts. Um, in, in fact, it's my understanding that our, our Phoenix division had, in fact, discussed a number of the subjects, in fact, maybe all of them. I mean, my colleague could to, could comment on this also, with the CIA, and at, at a couple of meetings, the issues of... Um, the issue of... Um, the infiltration of the airline industry um, by terrorist subjects was discussed.
2: All right. So therefore, you're saying that the headquarters, your unit, uh, did in fact um, discuss the concerns raised by the agent with the intelligence community. Is that what you're saying? You acted on that request. No, no I'm not.
7: I'm saying. Why did act, you not act on that request? I can't. I can't answer that uh, except to to um, to speak to what I learned post 9/11. All
2: right. Well, that doesn't then answer the question. You don't know why you didn't act on that request at the time. Is that the answer to the question? That's correct. Now the next question then relates to the Minneapolis issue, which is here you've got to go back to Phoenix. in, In the case of Phoenix, you've got a, an agent here who says request specifically that these concerns be shared with the intelligence community. You did not act on that request without, you know, inexplicably, now we've got another similar situation in Minneapolis. But here, apparently, the Minneapolis division did notify the CIA's counterterrorist center, the CTC, and according to Ms. Rowley, was, in her words, chastised for making the direct notification without the approval of the FBI. Now, let me ask our Minneapolis agent, do you know if that statement of Ms. Rowley is true? That is true, sir. This is, to me, goes to the heart if, of... Uh, excuse me, if I if I may
8: qualify that a little bit. Uh, it, it's true to a point. To the, the word chastised is perhaps a little prejudicial here. Uh, I did receive a communication from a supervisor at FBI headquarters that uh, indicated his preference would be that we contact FBI headquarters to coordinate any intelligence sharing with CIA headquarters. Uh, He indicated to me that the information flowed better when they were communicating headquarters to headquarters. And And I know that has been a longstanding preference of FBI
2: headquarters. Did you or she consider that to be a reprimand in sorts, a correction of a previous action? It seemed to me to be uh, a direction from FBI headquarters to cease and desist. Cease and desist. I'd like to speak to that if I could. Yeah. Uh, I'll I tell you, uh, I'm out of time. And I wanted to just, I, I think I'm out of time. Sorry, you are out of time, but you... Uh, could, could I respond to I, that? I yield you an additional minute because i you took a minute on administrative matters, which are in benefit all right. to all of us. So if you'd like the additional minute, it's your choice. Thank you. If you could can I do that in 30 seconds, that'll give me 30 seconds from my last minute. <laughs> yeah, I, I really,
7: I, I, I can. And, and namely that the supervisor who was handling that matter is the person who is going to be the affiant on the FISA. That individual has to be aware of everything that is going on in that case. And communications cannot be kind of going around him. Uh, the reality of it is, is things do work much better when they go through headquarters. There was no effort to, uh, to hinder in any manner communications between CIA and FBI. In fact, I can, I can tell you from firsthand experience with my conversations with CIA and with our FBI representative, Uh, at CIA during that time frame that there was exceptional flow of information back and forth.
2: There's a very quick question. Last 20 seconds. It's one thing where there's reticence on the part of agents, where there's legal barriers to take certain actions, but, but there's no barriers. That's where we get into trouble, seems to me. That's where I have difficulty understanding the failures to act. One of the great failures here was had to do with the FISA warrant and what is the standard for getting a FISA warrant and the the so-called foreign power provision, which you viewed or were told was a barrier erroneously by the legal division at FBI. Apparently, it was established by Senator Edwards. It was erroneous. Now, my question is this, and I read the law, it's clearly erroneous. You don't have to have a foreign power. You have a foreign terrorist group. That's enough for a FISA agent under the law. It existed it the happen.
7: foreign power with regard to a FISA in a terrorism case would be a terrorist organization. Exactly
2: right. You don't need a foreign power; a terrorist organization is enough. And yet, this was not pursued because it was. You were told that you had to prove that there was a foreign power connection. No, that,
7: that's not. All accurate. right.
2: If that's not correct, fine. I'll let Senator Edwards Q and A answer that. My question is this: Apparently, there was an acknowledgment. There was a, a misinterpretation of the law. Okay, how many FISA requests? were not made based on that misinterpretation of law, in addition to the one that we're talking about here? That's a very specific numerical question. How many requests were not made based on the misinterpretation, which was acknowledged or explored by Senator Edwards? I'll
0: uh, very briefly answer that if I may, Mr. Chairman. I don't know of of any other instance in which something like this came up, but I don't think Senator, that Senator Edwards' question got quite to what you were focused on there. The, the fact of the matter is that the agent of a foreign power is something that is not defined in the statute, but it is addressed in the legislative history, which we have to follow because that is where we get an explanation of it. An agent of a foreign power in the legislative history describes a knowing member of a group or organization and puts an onus on the government to prove that there is a nexus which exists between that individual and the organization, which would make it likely that that individual would do the bidding of the foreign power. That is the stretch that we weren't able to get to.
1: Mr. Chairman, if I may, I think that's absolutely essential because there seems to be a disconnect between whether or not we did not get the FISA because we could not connect him to a foreign power. We did not get the FISA because the decision came out in consultation with OGC that we could not plead him as an agent of that foreign power.
2: I could put in the record the definitions of foreign power in 50 US Code Section 1801A. And foreign power is defined as including in subsection four a group engaged in international terrorism or activities in preparation therefore.
1: No disagreement, but we have to prove he's an agent of that foreign power. Of that group. Right. that's where we were lacking. That's where we were lacking. He was an agent of that group. If I could, this is a a very significant issue
7: and one that that we should probably take up in a closed session. And and it needs to be explored because this is a problem that we're going to face many times now in the future. And uh, this issue of how to get at these so-called lone wolves uh, needs to be addressed. Thank you very much. We will do that. And
2: uh, we have uh, in plain text up here what Senator Levin has just held up. It's in our briefing books. And we are reading it, obviously, as laymen, not as operatives in the field or people having to deal with it. And obviously, this needs more dialogue. And we will arrange to have it in a freer uh, atmosphere for those of us who have to deal with this stuff.
3: Okay, so there were three FBI agents, two behind a partition screen, one of them being Ken Williams of Phoenix. The other one, I had no, I have no idea who he is to this day. And you have Michael Rollins. Now at the beginning, Levin requests about a redaction release of the Phoenix memo and asked for unclassified memo, the unclassified memo to view uh, publicly. Also a disclosure referred to Zacharias Musaui memo, which in which the FBI agent was worried about certain quotes related to the investigation. And that's the arresting officer of Moussaoui, Harry Samet out of uh, Minneapolis. Uh, these are important, this is a very important audio uh, I played to you because this shows you that it's not just an isolated problem, this is a bureaucratic problem about data sharing. And this has nothing to do with competing agencies involved. This is just the one uh, agency is the Department of Justice. The Phoenix FBI agent, Ken Williams, in the memo, which, uh, that the discussion raised in a memo tasked the intelligence community regarding the agent suspicions of suspicious Arabs in flight schools who had associations with terror networks. Now, Ken Williams had an FBI informant who was uh, an Arizona businessman um, who went by the name Henry Ellen, but he was a Muslim convert. And I forgot the name that
5: he used, um,
3: the Muslim name that he used. However, that, that he went by. Um, Ellen was uh, a longtime supporter of Yasser Arafat of the Palestinian Liberation Organization that went to uh, Israel and met with Arafat um, was a supporter of the Palestinian cause in Arizona. So he was well known in the Muslim community. And he found out through his contacts and associates that there was a number of suspicious Arabs who had ties to terrorist networks um, and terrorists abroad who were training at flight schools. And this was, uh, this intelligence was given to Ken Williams, who was his handler. Now, Ken Williams, this is the reason for the Phoenix memo, a huge part of it, and also the investigations that Williams conducted thereof. Now, Ken Williams said that this request regarding the memo was not acted by the intelligence committee and said his concerns in the memo were not acted on by anyone. Not to the FBI agents that were uh, faxed regarding the memo, which included John O'Neill, the New York County Unit, Minneapolis Field Division, New York, Washington, DC,
5: and Director Mueller. Now, on the issue of the Minneapolis FBI, they didn't notify the CIA regarding Zacharias Moussaoui.
3: And according to their counsel, Colleen Molly, she was chastised for making the direct notification without approval from the FBI. Now, I told you about Raleigh and her very direct letter to Director Mueller regarding malfeasance at the bureaucratic levels of the FBI, especially in Minneapolis, regarding the Musawi and Pfizer warrant. Now, she complained also in the letter about the regarding the Pfizer warrant and Harry Samet, who filed the application in which he needed approval by the Radical Fundamentalist Unit, headed by Maltby and Bowman, who denied the application due to technical mistakes in which the definition of a foreign agent, in which you heard from the one FBI agent hidden behind the partition screen, regarding what constitutes a direct link which was needed for the FISA warrant. Now, this was a debate between Levin and um, the agent behind the screen. Levin stated that the committee found the radical fundamentalist was wrong in denying the FISA warrant to the arresting agent, Harry Samet. But like I said, there was a misinterpretation of the law and that the Minneapolis agent, when asked by Levin, whether he knew of a case was not approved regarding a FISA warrant, he said, I didn't know of one.
5: But that the agent
3: of a foreign power is not addressed in the statute. Now, was Musawi a knowing agent of terrorist groups under a foreign power? Now, according to Michael Olney, who's the section chief of the counterterrorism division, he stated that Massawi was not defined as an agent under a foreign power. And that Rolnice responded that they had no available evidence that Musawi was acting under a foreign power. However, under according to French intelligence that came to the Minneapolis division, that Musawi was under supervision by a uh, a terrorist jihadist imam named Abu Hamza al masun in Germany. That Musawi also had some familiarity with another Chechen terrorist named Ibn Khatab who was a leader of the Chechen Muslim military in Chechnya fighting against the Soviets, in which Khatab found that Musawi was useless. So now we have within the FBI and admittance of a debate of interpretation regarding FISA law with a FISA warrant and what constitutes a foreign agent and a foreign power. And according to Colleen Raleigh and Harry Samet, that Musawi's links with Abu Hamza al-Masri and even even Khattab should have been enough. Guess what? By law, yes, it should have been enough. Now, the next audio I'll be playing is from September 27, 2002 in which Carl Levin interviews the director of the counter terrorism Unit, Kofor Black, and Dale Watson of the FBI's Counterterrorism Division, in which he was the former Executive Assistant Director of
5: Counterterrorism. The video is approximately eight minutes long. Thank you, Mr. Chairman.
2: Um, Let me welcome our two witnesses. Uh, I want to go back to um, some of the testimony here of uh, Mr. Black, where you acknowledged, as uh, has um, Mr. Tennant, that the CIA fell short using your words and not informing the Department of State that you had identified two al-Qaeda men And these were the two, Al-Midhar and Al-Hazmi, who were hijackers on Flight 77. These were two people you had identified uh, back in January of 2000 and in March of 2000. Uh, There's another problem here beside failing to notify the State Department, and that was failure to notify the FBI. Uh, The FBI says that it did not know of key bits of information that a visa had been issued to one of them and that the other one had actually entered the United States until August of 2001. So there was not just a failure to notify the State Department to get these folks on the watch list, but the CIA was aware of the fact that the one of them had a multiple entry visa and the other one had actually (coughs) entered the country uh, in March. Why was, and by the way, this is not Nothing to do with intelligence information and nothing to do uh, with uh, not crossing a line between uh, criminal uh, investigation and intelligence investigation. This was public information. This was a visa had been issued and somebody had traveled actually to the United States. My question is this, why, why was the FBI not notified by the CIA of those two critical facts about two people that the CIA had identified as terrorists uh, until August of 2001.
9: Um, We, uh, because of the uh, nature of our work being very fast-paced, there was communication. uh, and uh, There was communication between the CIA officers in the Counterterrorism Center um, and individuals in the FBI, particularly a CIA officer assigned to the FBI, their phone conversations, emails, things like that. In particular, the lapse that um, we're referring to is to do the the extra work of submitting a formal report to the State Department uh, into their lookout system, tip-off, so that action can be taken Um, There was communication. I think you have a very good point. We have admitted to the lapses of not submitting a form, a report in a form that um, would be actionable, but there was communication, but there's also um, um, an incredible amount of work. Let me just end
2: about the lack of communication. You see, there was communication. I want to focus on those two specific critical facts. Mm -hmm. Are you saying that the CIA did communicate to the FBI that those two people that you suspected as being terrorists had a multiple entry visa into the United States and had entered the United States. Are you saying that in that communication, that general word you're using, that those two facts were communicated orally to the FBI, is that what you're saying? What I'm saying is the identities, the names of the individuals. No, no. no. Were, but, but the issue of the
9: visa is, is, is problematic. I, All right. We All have right. no evidence that that
2: piece of information was communicated. And that's critical information, not of the FBI. The FBI is at the Counterterrorism center.
5: Yes, sir.
2: And so when the Counterterrorism center mm-hmm. is informed of this information Why is that not automatically then known to the FBI? We're trying to connect dots here, folks. The Counterterrorism Center is one place where the dots are supposed to be connected. And now I want to press the FBI. Since you're at the Counterterrorism Center, and since that information, I believe, went to the Counterterrorism Center, why then wasn't the FBI put on notice that two terrorists identified as in early 2000 as terrorists because they had been at those critical meetings in Kuala Lumpur. Why then was that not enough notice just being at the CTC for the FBI to say, whoops, wait a minute. These guys have visas to the United States. This guy entered the United States. Why weren't you put on notice? How can you say you didn't know about this until August of 2001?
8: I don't know the answer to that, Senator. And uh, there's a volume of information that flows through every day. And I'm not sure where the FBI agents were at the time that might have had access to that cable or not. It might have come in from the other division of the CIA. So I can't defend or or, or say that they saw it and didn't report it. I will say, though, without a doubt, I know that if the agency
2: had it, there was no plot, no thought by anybody at the CIA not to tell us. Well, nobody, nobody, well... Uh, wait a minute, there was a decision by the CIA not to tell you back in, August, in June of 2001. They were sitting there at a meeting, and the decision was made at that meeting in New York not to tell the FBI about it. That was a CIA decision for reasons that totally mystify me because this is not criminal investigation versus intelligence. This isn't blurring the line, violating rules and regulations. It's got nothing to do with that. This is public visa information. This is public travel information commercial travel information i understand the rules and regulations about not blurring the line between criminal uh investigation and intelligence because you don't want to mess up your criminal investigation but that is not the type of information that the cia that we're talking about here and that the cia did not share at that june meeting but i want to press the fbi sir uh, could could, could uh, i just say one thing on me
9: uh, as we understand it, sir, the CIA analyst was not permitted to provide all the information FBI criminal investigators wanted because of laws and rules against contaminating cr- criminal investigators with intelligence information.
2: I, I understand that. Okay, I, I uh, but you're to... saying you could have put it and should have put it on the watch list of the State Department. This isn't but, polluting Senator- criminal investigation. This is stuff that should have gone on the watch list by your own acknowledgement, this is a visa, that's public information, that this is commercial travel, that is public information, there is no pollution of criminal investigation whatsoever under any regulation by simply the CIA telling the FBI, hey, watch these folks, we have identified these folks as terrorists. These folks have entered the United States. That's all you have to tell them. You don't have to go into sources, methods. You don't have to talk about wiretaps. You don't have to talk about anything. Just that these folks identified by us have now entered the United States. That's all we're talking about. There's no violation of any rule, any regulation that I know of by simply telling the FBI that. And I think you acknowledge that when you say we should have notified the State Department to put them on a watch list. That makes it the kind of information which is and should have been available to the FBI. My time is up. If the Chairman wants to give them time to comment, that that would be up to the Chairman. I would welcome it, but I can't press that any further with that red
6: light on. Certainly, if you're brief I, in this response, we just make it for,
2: uh,
9: In my view, I think we're talking about two separate things. On one hand, we're talking about the the New York meeting uh, between the CIA and the FBI and on the other,'re we talking about the watch listing um, issue yes, the whole purpose of the system is to provide um, this type of information to the Department of State.
3: Okay, so this is very direct. Now, you'll notice that Levin is very authoritative with the heads of intelligence, especially the CIA. And when you have careerists like Kofra Black, Tom Wilshire, and later the final what he will be, George Tenet. You know, these guys were basically not used to to being told no or answer the question. Levin, this is the reason why I'm doing the podcast. Levin is rather adamant about pressing the issue of accountability in regards to data sharing, specifically in this instance, between the CIA and the FBI. Now, this is just one issue. I, you know, there are a number of issues in which the Joint Intelligence or the 9-11 Commission basically didn't address, which was basically foreign intelligence, Israelis and Saudis, the NSA, which was basically covered up. Um, and, you know, this issue is just one issue. And this is a huge, glaring issue. Now, Blacks earlier opening st- statement, he acknowledged that the CIA fell short in not informing the State Department about Nawaf al-Hazmin and Khalid Al-Midar, uh, in which the CIA identified in January 2000. Now, Levin also brings up that the CIA also failed to notify, not just the State Department, but the FBI, that the CIA was aware of the fact that al and Al-Midar had multiple entry visa. Now, this is public information. okay? This should have been shared with the FBI. And that's Levin's main argument in this audio. The question is why? Now, you're, now look, so far up to this point, we've been given the runaround regarding the CIA as to why they didn't share this with the FBI, whether the information was read or it wasn't transcribed correctly, um, bad training practices, uh, low standards of, of, of uh, low standards i you know I, goodness gracious or that they did were the outright lies where they all oh, they shared the information but they really didn't share all the information now at least black now black responded that there was communication between the cia's counterterrorism center and the fbi now what now what does that mean really communication well what specific i'm i'm, I'm talking about specifics here right Specifics. Communication is vague. And he also stated that there was a tip-off about two al-Qaeda members to the State Department. And you know, basically, Cobra Black stammers about communication about what is it specifically. Now, look, in August of 2001, Cobra Black and George basically held an emergency meeting uh, between the heads of state, joint chiefs, Condoleezza Rice, Richard Clark, head of the counter, National Counterterrorism Center, in which Cobra Black basically states that he thinks something big is gonna happen and that there are two al-Qaeda operatives inside the United States. This is the first time the CIA shared information about al-Qaeda operatives inside the United States. This is August of 2001. And Richard Clark basically tells him, how long have you known this information? Why was this information withheld? Why? That's what we want to know. Why? And we're not getting that answer. Now, whether, and this leads open to conspiracy theories. And I don't blame some of them. Some of them make sense and some do not. About whether some people within the CIA wanted it to happen. Or that all of them wanted it to happen. I I couldn't tell you. Well, the CIA's response is that they wanted to turn Khalid al Midar and Wapahazmi into double agents. That was the excuse. Did the CIA notify the FBI about al Hazmi and al Midar, who were communicating orally about them possessing dual entry visa? Well, go for black admits it wasn't communicated to the FBI. <laughs> of course, it wasn't. No one told them that. Why? Because if they did, it's now a domestic issue. And now the FBI is in charge of investigating Khalid Al-Madar and As long as they're not told that, the FBI has no jurisdiction because these two men were outside the United States. And outside the United States, the CIA was in charge of the operation involving the Yemen hub and any operations about terrorism outside the United States. This is about controlling information. Now, Levin states that when the FBI's counterterrorism center said it was informed that both Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar, why didn't the FBI put them on notice on a terrorist watch list? Now, that information was shared finally in July of 2001, uh, June, uh, August 2001. So why didn't the FBI put them on a terrorist watch list? But Dale Watson, the former assistant FBI director for counterterrorism, in which he says in the audio that he doesn't know why. This is another
5: bureaucratic problem. How could he not know why?
3: And he also went on to give Covert Black and the CIA's counter tells him you not in which Watson says that if the CIA had the information, he's sure they would have shared it with them. But Levin, as you can hear, says no, that there was a coordinated effort not to share that information with the FBI. And that's true. Levin even reiterated that there was a decision made in June of 2001, where a meeting between the CIA and the FBI, in which Clark Shannon, the CIA analyst, was told to not share information on orders from his CIA superiors about the identities of Khalid al-Mador and Wapahazmi and whether they were, had U.S. visas. And most of all, they were inside the United States. This is in the final audio, which is next. This is answered by Tenet. And it's the big bingo. And Levin, of course, he's mystified at the fact That this public information about U.S. visas, which was possessed by Khalid uh, al-Nawapahazmi, and why the FBI was not notified about these two men, Khalid al-Nawapahazmi, and the issue of U.S. visas. But Black interjects about why the CIA official or the analyst didn't share the information to the FBI, Clark Shannon. He asserts that they didn't want to contaminate the current criminal investigation regarding Al-Hazmi and al midon Levin basically responds that the CIA should have warned the FBI about the presence of two Al-Qaeda subjects inside the United States due to the fact that they were involved with the USS Cole bombing, which was a federal investigation matter of the FBI, the Department of Justice, which is right. That is right. And because they were inside the United States and because they were in possession of dual US visas, this should have been enough reason to share that information with the FBI, and it was not. Now, the fifth and final audio is regarding Carl Lemon interviewing CIA Director George Tenet and the FBI Director Robert Mueller on September on October 17, 2002. Final day, the joint house inquiry.
5: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. First, let me uh, thank uh, both our
2: chairman and our vice chairman for their steady and their determined leadership of this effort uh, and also add my thanks to Eleanor Hill and her staff for their uh, extraordinary effort. Mr. Chairman, after months of investigation and numerous joint inquiry hearings, both open and closed, a fair reading of the facts has led to a deeply troubling conclusion. Prior to September 11th, U.S. intelligence officials possessed terrorist information that, if properly handled, could have disrupted, limited, or possibly prevented the terrorist attacks. At crucial points in the 21 months leading up to September 11th, this intelligence information was not shared or was not acted upon, and as a result, numerous opportunities to thwart the terrorist plot were squandered. I put up here a blue chart and handed to each of you copies of those charts, which track two of the hijackers, Al-Midhar and Al-Hazmi, an American Air, who were the hijackers of American Airlines Flight 77, which attacked the Pentagon. I understand from Mr. Mueller's prior testimony of September 25th that the travel of the 12 terrorists who constituted the, quote, muscle close quote, for the 9-11 hijackings may also actually have been coordinated by al-Midhar. The charts contain, in chronological order, well-established and well-known facts. The backdrop is that we know that in 1998, the CIA had essentially declared war on bin Laden and on al-Qaeda, Then in December 1999, there was a heightened state of terrorist alert due to the Millennium Celebration. That was the environment in which the failures occurred. An Intelligence report was sent to the CIA and the FBI, identifying four Al-Qaeda operatives with links to the East African U.S. Embassy bombings and stating that they were planning to meet in Malaysia. The Malaysia meeting was of significant importance, so much so that not only was the FBI notified, but the director of the CIA was briefed about that meeting on numerous occasions. The CIA monitored the meeting in Malaysia, which took place from July 5th to July 8th, 2000, 20 months before September 11th. And as a result of the monitoring, the CIA learned some important information. On January 5th, The CIA knew the full name of one of the attendees, and what they knew was an al-Qaeda operative's meeting. His name was Midhar. The CIA also had his passport information, including a multiple-entry visa for the U.S. Our staff has concluded that that information uh, was uh, not distributed to the FBI, but there's some dispute about that. On January 9th, the CIA learned the full name of Hasmi, another attendee at the Al-Qaeda operatives meeting, and learned that Hasmi had left Malaysia on January 8th with Midhar on the same flight, seated together. But with this information and this state of concern, this high-level state of concern and a declaration of being at war With al-Qaeda, the CIA did not put either Hazmi or Midhar on the watch list. And again, according to our staff conclusion, the CIA did not tell the FBI all that the CIA knew, including that Midhar had a multiple entry visa to the U.S. I want to first focus, Mr. Tenet, on the question of the watch list, which you've talked about in your testimony. What reason specifically here? I don't want just a general answer here that uh, there was a lot of workload and no, so sir. forth. But what reason was given specifically by the CIA person responsible for putting that name on the watch list is to, the failure to do so? We're not putting the name on the watch list. Um, our, our judgment is, as in talking to
8: everybody working at the time, that there were uneven standards, poor training, and we didn't for give that them. specific failure? All those reasons for that specific failure? Yes, sir. Failure. We did not, everybody, the people involved. Where people who have access to who we've talked to acknowledge that there were uneven practices, bad training and a lack of redundancy, the fact that they were swamped does not mitigate the fact that we didn't overcome that with either redundancy, a separate unit or
2: better training. Have you us. identified the person or persons who are responsible to put that name on the watch list? We know who was working this case. My question is, though, do you know the name or names of the persons who are responsible for putting those names on the watch list? That's my question. Yes, sir. I think I think I have. All right. Now, then we come to March 5th, same year, 2000. The CIA learns some additional information, very critical information. On March 5th, the CIA learns that Hasmi had actually entered the United States on January 15th seven days after leaving the Al-Qaeda meeting in Malaysia. So now the CIA knows Hazmi is in the United States, but the CIA still doesn't put Hazmi or Midar on the watch list and still does not notify the FBI about a very critical fact, a known Al-Qaeda operative. We're at war with Al-Qaeda. A known Al-Qaeda operative got into the United States. My question is, do you know specifically why the FBI was not notified of that critical fact at that time? The,
8: the cable that came in from the field at the time, sir, was labeled information only, and I know that
2: nobody read that cable. But my question is, do you know why the FBI was not notified of the fact that an al-Qaeda operative now was known in March of the year 2000 yeah. to have entered the United States? Why was the CIA, Why did the CIA not specifically notify the cia that's my question the fbi sir if we were we weren't aware
8: of it when it came in the headquarters we couldn't have notified them nobody read that cable in
2: march in the march time frame so that the cable that said that hazmi had entered the united states came to your headquarters nobody read it yes sir it was
8: an information only cable from the field and nobody read that information only cable. should it have been read yes of course in hindsight and should it, it have, should been have been read at the read. time? Of course, it should have been. All right. Read my time. question is: Do you know who should have read it? I don't know that, sir, but I can who find. Was that somebody out. responsible to have read? It? Well, a group of people. Somebody should have read it. Yes, not sir. Right. We need to. We need to also look at where it came into. But I can find but that you out. You don't know who that
2: person. Was. I do not. Should they have been watchlisted at the time? Both of them? now we're talking March of the year two thousand. Yes, sir. We've acknowledged that fact. Okay. Do we know why in that specific time? Now we know that Hasmi has entered the United States. This is another trigger point. Yes, sir. They should have been watchlisted. Who was responsible for watchlisting at that time? I don't know the answer to that question, but All I will right. provide an answer. Next, on October 12, 2000, bin Laden operatives attacked the USS Cole. The FBI, which investigated that attack, learned that a Bin Laden follower, Khalad, who was the principal planner of the coal bombing, and the two other participants in the coal conspiracy had delivered money to Khalad at the Malaysia meeting. Now, the FBI told the CIA about those facts. That information came from the FBI to the CIA. Okay. CIA went back, reviewed the facts that they had about the Malaysia meeting again. And as a result of that review... In January of 2001, the CIA determined that Khalad had actually been at the Malaysia meeting and that Midhar and Hazmi, then they knew, you knew, had been involved with the planner of the coal bombing. Actually, been with the planner of the coal bombing at the Malaysia meeting. CIA again failed to put either Hasmi or Midhar on the watch list or to notify the FBI that Hasmi was in the United States. And my question is, do you know who is responsible for that failure? So, can I take you back to the sure. facts for a moment? First of all, in terms of the
8: identification of Khalad, actually, it was the FBI who provided the information to us because we were in a joint meeting at the time the third, at a third country, because we were running a joint case with somebody who identified Khalid, And indeed, in January of 2001, the legal attaché from this third country writes messages to both our headquarters that after have been, having been shown the surveillance photos of Kuala Lumpur, he made an identification of Kalad. So at that point, that point, sir, both the CIA and the FBI know that Midhar was in Malaysia, and that in in this time period, and that Khalad was in Malaysia at this time period as well.
2: Now, that's that's irrelevant to my point. What you did not notify the CIA of at that point. No, the FBI. Excuse me, but but you did not notify, thank you, the FBI of at that point, is that you knew that Hazmi was in the United States. That's correct, sir. That's January now of 2001, another failure. Sir,
8: there are three instances, as I note in my testimony, on my, three separate I
2: know. My question, do you know who was responsible to notify the FBI at that time? I don't, but I'll find out for you. Now we have a meeting in the year 2002 in New York City. And this is a meeting of a CIA analyst and FBI officials from the New York field office which was the office investigating the coal bombing and the FBI headquarters, including the FBI analyst on detail to the counterterrorist center at the CIA. The FBI agents on the coal bombing pressed the CIA at that meeting for information regarding Midhar and the Malaysia meeting, but the CIA representative denied them that information. It's a very specific finding in the staff report that there was a refusal to share that information relative to Midhar in Malaysia and as to why the CIA was tracking Midhar at a June 2001 meeting on the specific request of an FBI agent in New York. My question is, do you know why that CIA agent refused to tell the CIA agent what the FBI, oh. what the CIA, let me start over. Do you know why the CIA agent refused to tell the FBI agent what the CIA agent knew when the FBI agent specifically said, why are you tracking Midhar?
8: We have, um, we're going to have a disagreement on the facts here. Um, and here are the facts, as I understand them. There were three people who left New York to go to, to, go to Washington to go to New York that day. It was an FBI analyst from FBI headquarters, an FBI analyst from our counterterrorism center and our analyst. They went up to discuss the Cole investigation. The FBI analyst from FBI headquarters brought the surveillance photos with her. And at the end of the conversation, and I've now talked to two of the people involved, Senator, the FBI analyst from FBI headquarters handed the surveillance photos to the New York field office personnel. There was some discussion about them Indeed, they were talking about different people. Midhar was not who they were talking about in this meeting. When I asked our person at this meeting as to whether he was, spe- he was specifically asked about Midhar and Hazmi, uh, he, believe- he has no recollection of the subject ever being directed to him or ever coming up. So there's a, there's a factual issue here, and I've only talked to two of the people involved. Let, let, me, read
2: the, let me read you the staff report. The CIA analyst who attended the New York meeting acknowledged to the joint inquiry staff that he had seen the information regarding al-Midar's U.S. visa and al-Hazmi's travel to the United States, but he stated that he would not share information outside of the cia unless he had authority to do so that's what he told our staff do you disagree with that sir i've talked to him as well you disagree that he said that to our staff well no i don't disagree he said it to your staff i'm telling you what he he told you something differently yes sir he gave me a different perspective so he told you and he told our staff something differently well okay but i I think it's important sir yeah but our time is limited so let me just keep going that's the answer he told you something differently from what he told our staff mr muller director muller At that June 11th meeting, did the FBI know that Midhar and Hasmi were at the January 2000 meeting of Al-Qaeda operatives in Malaysia? I don't believe they did. So We still don't know in June of 2001 what the CIA has known for 15 months. Director Mueller, after Midhar and Hasmi were placed on the watch list by the CIA on August 23rd now, 2001. Now they are on the watch list. It's August. It's less than a month before September 11th. The FBI opened an investigation on Midhar, but not on Hasmi. Why did the FBI, why did you not try to
0: locate Hasmi? My understanding is that the information related to Mr. Hasmi was included in the file of Midhar and that efforts were made to locate both of them.
5: Your understanding is that there's an effort made to locate Hazard. Oh, Let me just check. My understanding. Okay. All right. I think that's something different from what is in our report. Because the,
2: the New York agent was asked to open an investigation on Midhar, not on both.
8: Well, My
0: my understanding is that we made an effort to identify uh, and locate both individuals regardless of whether or not the file may have been opened under one as opposed to the other.
2: All right. Director Muller, without alluding to names, I want to talk to you about the individuals that were mentioned in the Phoenix Memorandum. There were 10 individuals that were the subject of a UBL, Osama bin Laden related investigation. How many of those 10, none of those now were hijackers, but some of them were standbys, perhaps, sleepers, perhaps, ready to participate, perhaps? We have no evidence of that, All right, what, Senator. How many of them in your findings, in your investigation, how many of the 10 people listed in the Phoenix report were part of the bin Laden conspiracy? My uh, recollection,
0: we have subsequently identified one of those as being associated
5: with Al Qaeda, let me just check one second. I I I would uh,
0: I have not checked. It's a question I would I am not uh, did not necessarily anticipate anticipate. So I have not gone and checked whether or not the investigations in each of the other nine. One I, am, I have in my mind was associated, we subsequently came to find, was associated with Al Qaeda. As to the other nine, I don't believe we've found that they have, uh, any one of them has been associated with Al Qaeda, but I would have to check to make absolutely certain.
2: Right. This is a very critical fact. You've got a Phoenix memo, you've got 10 people listed by that FBI agent. You have a visit to the apartment house, you've got Bin Laden pictures all over the apartment. Uh, you got the agent saying this should be shared with the CIA. It wasn't shared with the CIA, that information. You got 10 people named as going to flight schools, great deal of suspicion. Well, and okay. And I, and
0: I think that is uh, reading into that memorandum uh, more than is there. We absolutely had an investigation going on an individual, a principal individual and other associates. But uh, in terms of I think you have to take each of those individuals and weigh the evidence
2: against each of those individuals. I agree. All of them were attending flight schools. I agree. According to our information, as of May of 2002, four of those were under bin Laden-related investigations. Do you have any different information from that?
0: I would have to go back and, and determine. Uh, it may well be that they are the subjects under bin Laden. In other words, we could open a file and in the file, identify the individual as possibly an associate or a subject that should be investigated for the possibility of being uh, uh, associated with bin Laden, but that is far different
2: than having
0: evidence and information that the person is, in fact, a member of al-Qaeda or associated. How as many pardon? are still
2: under investigation for a bin Laden-related matter?
5: Uh, out of that Phoenix memorandum? Yes. Um, uh, at least three. I think this is highly significant information that you should be on top of.
2: This, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, Senator, we have
0: a number of investigations going, uh, investigations going around the country.
2: Now, I'm, talking about, uh, that Phoenix, Phoenix I'm well, talking
0: about the Phoenix memo. I'm talking about
2: the Phoenix memo. Let me, let me ask both of you, we, I've, asked, I've asked you, Director Muller, to release the Phoenix Memo to make it public, you, but redacted, and to release the Minneapolis emails,
5: redacted, and they've not yet been released publicly. Why not? Um, hold on one second. I, 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 uh, Senator,
0: I, to the extent that there is no classification issue, I, we have no objection to them being released. My understanding is they're going through declassification.
2: All right. Uh, I've, been, I've requested you to release them some time ago, and they should be released by now. Well, I, uh, I do one not of the believe necessarily we, that we are holding up the declassification
0: I mean, well, process. Senator. Well, then who is? No, I, I would have to check in
2: that, but I don't. Right. Well, we the, have committee, not, we have the not. committee's asked for this too, by the way. This isn't just my personal request. The okay. committee has asked for the release of these documents redacted, made available to the public. If we want to change things, the way things operate around here, we're going to have to be open and we're going to have to hold some people accountable. Last question. Director Tennant, how many people have been held accountable for failures?
8: Held anybody
2: accountable, yet, Director Muller, how many people have been held accountable for failures? Well, it depends on your definition of accountable, but I
0: would say I would say that I have not held somebody accountable in the sense of either disciplining or firing somebody. I have made changes in the result as a result of what this committee has found, and as a result of what we found in our investigation, of what we did well and what we did not do
2: well. in the the days and the months prior to September 11th. If changes are going to be real and are going to stick, in addition to all the structural changes that you've talked about and all of the other things which you described, we need openness. We need documents to be released, which should have been released by now, including including the Phoenix Memo and the Minneapolis emails. We've waited a year now for those. And I believe people who failed in their responsibilities have got to be held accountable. This is not a matter of scapegoating. This is a matter of accountability. There's been, I believe, too little effort made to pinpoint the responsibility. You don't even know the names of the people who are responsible for failures and no holding people accountable. We're not going to have real change unless we have that. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll close with that. Uh, May I respond to that, Senator? I think you, you should respond to that. It's
0: up to the chair, okay. but, I'd but I'd be happy. But when it comes to right. accountability, and you take something like the Phoenix uh, uh, memorandum that came back into headquarters, there were two analysts and two separate units that looked at that. The procedures in place at that time did not require the unit chief or the section chief to review that particular memorandum. Now, I am not going to take in an analyst who is doing what she or he is supposed to do under those procedures and hold that person,
2: quote, accountable. I'm not suggesting you should. Only the people who you find failed. I'm not suggesting that if someone didn't fail, you hold them accountable. It's where someone in your judgments have failed. There should be some accountability. That's all that I'm suggesting.
0: But going back to accountability, it is important, I think, to recognize that we have to put into place procedures to which assure accountability. And one of the things I mentioned in... My opening statement was the requirement that the accountability be at headquarters as opposed to not being diffused
2: in the field. So I think we are addressing accountability appropriately so. I would ask unanimous consent, Mr. Chairman, that my list of the CIA failures and the FBI failures relative to these matters be placed in the record at this time.
3: And that's the nail in the coffin from Levin to the intelligence community in large part. Now this was the most Revealing audio of all, because it showed that the highest levels, the directors of the CIA and the FBI, basically failing in their regards to not just data sharing, but also acting on the intelligence preceding the events of September 11, 2001. Now, Tenet basically took a loss here. And he basically committed perjury. And I'll talk about this in a minute. Now, Levin o- opens up his time by reporting to the committee that the CI withheld, for whatever reason, information regarding K- Khalid al Midar and Hazmi from the FBI and the State Department, which could have provided invaluable assistance to not just the State Department or the Department of Justice, but also to the Immigration and Naturalization Services, to the Federal Aviation Administration to the uh, local uh, law enforcement, which would have been put on notice by the FBI. Levin then asks Director Tennant on why Al and Ahadwe were not put on the watch list. And Tennant responded that there was uneven practices and poor training and a lack of redundancy. Basically, a bunch, of, a bunch of really convenient excuses as to why. Now, whether those, re, those reasons were legitimate is up for debate. Again, this leads to the conspiracies that follow. And if that's the case, the CIA shouldn't really be going to the uh, Senate Arms Committee and asking for a bonus or t- for uh, a raise, in their annual budget. And then Levin asks, who is supposed to put Al-Madar and Al-Hazmi on the watch list? And Tenet again says he thinks he knows, but he doesn't. Right there now. On March 5th, the CIA learns that Al-Hazmi entered the United States on January 15th and st- didn't put Nawaf al-Hazmi on the watch
5: list or tell the FBI.
3: Which I reiterated earlier in this podcast as to why they didn't and we never got that answer. Well, Levin asks Tenet if he knows specifically why the CIA didn't tell the FBI. Now, Levin, and this is the real kicker here. This
5: is the big one.
3: Why Levin asks Director Tennant if he specifically knows why the CIA didn't tell the FBI about Nawaf Hazmi and Khalid Al-Madar having dual U.S. visas and
5: being inside the United States. In which an FBI
3: agent by the name of Doug Miller, who was on loan from the New York Counterterrorism Center to the Bin Laden issue station, which he saw the cable regarding Nawapa Hazmi possessing a dual US visa, I mean, being inside the United States and Khalid al Midar having a dual US visa. Now, he tried to draft a memo or a cable to warn FBI headquarters in Washington, D.C about the men coming to the United States, and he had to get authorization from the deputy director of the CIA at Alex Station, Tom Wilshire. Tom Wilshire told his analyst, Michelle Ann Casey, not, uh, don't let the information uh, be shared. In fact, on the cable, it says, please hold per Wilshire." Michelle Ann Casey wrote that. Tennant answered, that the cable that came in from the field was an information only cable, and he knows that nobody read that cable in the March timeframe. This is perjury because it is later found out that not only did someone read that cable, but over 50 agents within the Counterterrorism Center read the cable. 5 0. 50, over 50. According to Lawrence Wright and Looming Tower, it's 53 agents. Levin remarks for clarity that the cable that said Al-Hazmi entered the United States, nobody read it. And Tenet says, yes, nobody read that cable within the March timeframe. So that's twice he answered it in the negative knowing full well
5: that it was read.
3: Levin inquires who should have read the cable. Michelle Ann Casey read the cable. And Tennant states that it should have been read. In in hindsight, it should have been read. And then Levin asks who should have read it, in which Tennant basically pauses and says, I don't know, but I'll find out. Now, according to Raina Lewinsky's book, The watchdogs Didn't Bark, Tenet basically whispered to the director of the NSA, Michael Hayden, sitting next to him, that no matter what, I'm not giving her up. Meaning the analyst who initially read
5: the cable first, Michelle and Casey,
3: that's who read it. Because he's in charge of the CIA's Yemen hub investigation in Sanaa Yemen. So right there, he's withholding information from the committee and even perjured himself, not once but twice, answering in the negative regarding a cable, which according to Tenet was information only, regarding two al-Qaeda operatives, one inside the United States. Levin then moves on to, well, he asked tenant as of March of 2000. Who was responsible for watchlisting Nawaf al-Hazmi? Tenant replies, he doesn't know, but will provide an answer later. And guess what? That answer never came. Now, who is provided, who is responsible for watchlisting al-Hazmi? Well, that would be the analyst in charge of the Yemen hub, Michelle Ankesi or would it be the, the, the head chief of Alex station, Richard Blee? Levin then asks, Director Tenet, as of March of 2000, I'm sorry, he, he then moves on to October 12th of 2000, which was the USS Cole bombing, that the FBI, which investigated that a Bin Laden follower named Khalad, whose name is Wali Binitash, had been at a Malaysia summit meeting in January of 2000 and received money from two Al Qaeda associates at the meeting. Those two men were Khalid al Midar and Al-Hazmi. The CIA reviewed the fact of the meeting, and in January of 2001, that both men, al Hazmi and al Midar, had been involved in the US's coal bombing while meeting with Khalad at the summit. This is all public information, it's known. Even with all this, the CIA still failed to put either men on the watch list or notify the State Department or the FBI. Levin then asks, Director tenant, who is responsible for this failure? And again, Tennant states that the collad information was provided to the CIA by the FBI during the investigation of the USS, uh, U.S. Embassy bombings due to the fact they were in a joint investigation. Now, this was going nowhere. And it dissuades from the question. And Levin caught on to it. And it says, no, it's irrelevant to his point. But the CIA did notify the FBI that they knew Al-Hazmi was inside the United States in January 2000. Who was responsible to notify the FBI at that time? And Tenet basically says he doesn't know. Perjury. He does know.
5: Michelle Ann Casey. Or Richard Blee.
3: Since Michelle Ann Casey is involved as the lead agent, lead officer involved with the Yemen Hub, and that Khalid Al Midar and Nawapahazmi were picked up by the CIA regarding their monitoring of the Yemen Hub, which was shared initially by the NSA because they were the first agency to monitor the phone calls out of the Yemen Hub. I told the CIA about uh, this operation in the hopes of getting photographs and information, human intelligence regarding who was coming in and out of the house, since they don't do human intelligence. And the, and the CIA, even though they got the heads up from the NSA, they, of course, didn't share that information in the NSA. Now, Levin brings up the meeting between the CIA and the FBI at the FBI headquarters, in which they were investigating the coal bombing at the FBI headquarters. Now, Tom Wilshire, who is the deputy director, the second in command of Alex Station, he went on to work. He was his coal investigation at FBI headquarters. That's rather interesting. Here's a guy who basically withheld information, intentionally withheld information from the FBI and he's investigating, he's helping the FBI to investigate the U.S.'s coal bombing? What do you think he was there for? And the FBI agents pressed that meeting, which was between Clark Shannon, the CIA analyst, and FBI, Steve Bongard, in which the FBI agent pressed the CIA information for information about Al Midar at the Malaysia meeting, and that, that Clark Shannon denied them that information. So it was an at a of a refusal to share that information of why the CIA was tracking Khalid Al-Midar. Why? Who told Clark Shannon not to share the information even though George Tenet basically later states that that's not what he told us or I told him. Does the CIA know why the CIA analyst refused to tell the FBI agent about Almidar and why he was tracking Al-Midar? Well, Tenet responds that the FBI analyst from Malik Station and the Counterterrorism Center, that a CIA analyst from the Counterterrorism Center, Clark Shannon, told them, and that he was tasked alongside with an FBI agent who was tasked to the Counterterrorism Center, knew about Khalid Al-Midhar, but the FBI agent was not made aware of it. Now, this was later reiterated under Kofra Black's testimony and the testimony regarding Tom Wilshire and Steve Bongard, who were hit by the partition. In which Bongard basically states that, yeah, the FBI agent basically didn't know all the information. The CIA didn't tell him. everything. Here we have the director of the CIA. Here we have the director of the Counterterrorism Center. Here we have the deputy director of Alex Station all saying that the FBI knew this information. They all lied. They all lied. They didn't tell you the truth. The FBI didn't know, and the, the FBI's testimony, Steve Bongard, basically said the FBI didn't know that agent that was tasked to the CIA Counterterrorism Center didn't know all the information. Margaret Gillespie, she didn't know.
5: Now, tenant, now
3: Levin basically says, now the CIA analyst Clark Shannon. Was basically asked, was basically ordered not to share that information with the FBI. And he says to Tenet, Do you agree with that? And Tenet responds, Well, no, because that's not what he told. Levin remarks, So he told you and he told us something different. And which Tenet basically was stammering at that point. So Levin then went on to ask FBI Director Robert Mueller at that June 11th meeting, did the CIA share any information about Khalid al menar and Nawaf Mahazmi with the FBI agents regarding the Malaysia summit meeting of Al-Qaeda operatives? And Mueller responds, I don't believe they did. And that's the nail in the coffin. Levin then emphatically remarks that, so we still don't know in June of 2001 of what the CIA knew for 16 months. What he's implying there is a rather obvious to everybody listening. The CIA intentionally withheld information to the FBI about two known Al Qaeda operatives who were involved with the USS Cole bombing and who were at the high level Al Qaeda summit meeting in January 2000 possessing dual US visas while they were inside the United States. All this was suppressed from the FBI and the State Department. And the CIA under their own admission, created a whole bunch of excuses as to why they didn't share that information, to which Tenet basically committed perjury. So Levin now directs his intention to Director Mueller, in which he says, after Al-Hazmi and Al-Midar are placed on the watch list in August of 2001, the FBI opened an investigation to only Khalid Al-Midar, but not to Wafa hazmi this is rather interesting. Mueller responds that the information regarding the al hazmi the Al-Middar uh, the the file included al and that they tried to locate both men. However, Levin states that an FBI agent from New York City, Steve Bongart, who previously gave testimony, said his investigation only focused on al hazmi not al Now the problem belongs with Mueller. Why? Why was the FBI only tasking an investigation into just uh, uh, Khalid Al-Midar? It's rather interesting. And why was there so few resources dedicated to the monitoring of either men? It was given to a a relatively fresh agent out of the academy, Steve Donanucci, in which he basically later reports in the, which was later uh, reported in the FBI's inspector general report that the FBI basically failed in regards to their investigation into both men regarding a lack. A complete lack of resources, dedication, and manpower regarding the investigation of Khalid al-Midar and Al-Hazmi between the months of August 2001 and September of 2001. Levin then brings up the Phoenix memo issue, in which 10 individuals mentioned in the memo by like Ken Williams and whether they were investigated by the FBI. Mueller quickly responds that there was no evidence to involve them with the bin Laden conspiracy, but then relates that maybe one was associated with Al-Qaeda. He later
5: retracts this.
3: So then Mueller basically has to confer with, I think it's legal counsel behind him, was sitting behind him, or maybe an analyst at the VAI. And then remarks that it's something that he has not really checked into. And because he didn't anticipate the question, into the investigations of the other nine people. Why? Well, well, that would be reported later. Well, I mean, it was later uh, uh, an issue when Colleen Raleigh put her letter, when she faxed her letter to Director Mueller about a lack of uh, redundancy, a lack of. Uh, coordination within the FBI hierarchy and the agents, the field agents themselves, bureaucratic issues, including a complete dismissal of the Phoenix memo, a complete dismissal, which had valid information about Arab terrorists years prior to 9-11 training at flight schools. And that's the reason why I brought up the Bajinka issue, the Bajinka plot, in which the Philippines basically shared that information with the FBI about sleeper cells inside the United States i'm not even i didn't even bring up the able danger program from the defense intelligence agency which showed that the a part of the analytical team which was the land information warfare activity division which helped in the data mining which was an overload of information about terror cells operating inside the united states one of them being the Hamburg cell. That's Muhammad al and al Shaheen Ziyad Jarrah living inside the United States. Multiple agencies, multiple operations, which basically had metadata and intelligence years prior to the attacks, all basically subverted by their superiors. Levin then states that the issue was crucial because the Phoenix agent went to the house of one person named out of the 10. One of them was Zachariah Subra, who had pictures of Bin Laden in his house. Who hated the West, and when Ken Williams went to interview him, he basically told him that he wishes he could attack the United States. He hates the West and that. And Ken Williams basically said, "We need to we need to investigate that guy." And so the report was basically dedicated to him and the individuals uh, that were named by his informant, Henry Ellen. to which Levin states that four of the 10, as of May of 2002, were under bin Laden-related investigations. Now, Mueller says he didn't know about that, but he will investigate the matter. Now, what does that tell you about the seriousness of the FBI and their abject failure to take these issues seriously? So Levin then asked Mueller how many of the 10 men are currently under an investigation into a bin Laden-related matter? He then states, after conferring with counsel, at least three are. Remarkable. Because if that memo was read before September 11, 2001, maybe, just maybe, the FBI could have Started an emergency agent investigation, agency investigation into flight schools in Arizona, in Minneapolis, in Oklahoma, and the employees and the students, these Arab students, and their connections to terrorist organizations but no investigations ever happened. Levin says this is highly significant information that needs to be immediately looked at. And then relates to Mueller, why the Phoenix memo isn't made public. Also the Minneapolis emails, Harry
5: Samet, Colleen Raleigh, Marion Bowman, Dave Frasca, Mike Baltby,
3: all those that were involved with the Zacharias Moussaoui investigation and how it was hindered because of a, dis- a dispute between the legalities of a FISA warrant, and what it entails, and what it doesn't. He then asks Mueller, why aren't they public? Mueller confers with his counsel again and says, unless they are going under the declassification issue, uh, this is an issue. And Levin now is frustrating. and says, we asked you a year back about
5: this request.
3: That's right. The committee put out a year prior about the request. December of 2001. Mueller then stammers about why these aren't uh, made public and Levin really pressures Mueller about accountability here. And this is why I dedicated the podcast to Carl Levin, because out of the two congressional inquiries, he is the only one that I found to be the only panel member to put pressure on the CIA and the FBI. The NSA was given a pass they allowed the FBI and the CIA to take the fall. For whatever reasons, why they didn't ask Caden many questions about the NSA collecting this enormous amount of data from bin Laden's satellite phone and from the wiretap of the house in Yemen, which basically would break 9/11. Because if the NSA heard that the operations were being talked about by the phone, that would show that the intelligence agencies allowed the attacks to happen, if they weren't talking about the attacks on the phone, that means Al Qaeda was not involved.
5: Levin really
3: now pressures Director Mueller and Tennant about how many people have been held accountable for the abject failures and both say none. and levin then really just shows you
5: the moral
3: issue involving this abject and just tremendous and I'm, and i think i am i think that's being using the term lightly this enormous intelligence failure of mega proportions in which he says that changes are going to be real we need openness and documents released and the people who failed in their responsibilities regarding data sharing data mining and the withholding of information the intentional withholding of information need to be held accountable and that very little effort was made to hold anyone accountable and he made sure that Mueller and Tennant were made aware of that. Something that was not issued by any panelist member
5: in that authoritative manner.
3: And so, what will we get? In the future, regarding a follow up to the questions asked by not just Levin, but by the 14 others in the Joint House Inquiry, to the 15 panel members of the 9 11 Commission, and most of all, the questions that were ignored by the widows of the attacks of September 11, 2001, commonly known as the Jersey Widows, in whose 90% of their questions went largely ignored by the two congressional inquiries. When will we start asking the right questions and start instead of answering with
5: conjecture, with speculation,
3: and unfounded belief? It's high time we start acting like Carl Levin and start putting the pressure, unrelenting pressure, on the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, and the foreign intelligence rings of Israel and Saudi Arabia. And then maybe, just maybe, we'll be getting somewhere.
5: That's it for this podcast. Have a good night and see you at the next time.